This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. The new Netflix horror miniseries, The Fall of the House of Usher, makes for a terrifically spooky October binge. It cleverly reimagines and remixes several works by Edgar Allan Poe in a modern setting. We meet doomed siblings Roderick and Madeline Usher and the dark secrets that even their unimaginable wealth and privilege can't manage to keep buried. I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we're talking about The Fall of the House of Usher on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Dive into the chilling new Hulu original series, Under the Bridge, the riveting adaptation of the acclaimed true crime book. Based on shocking true events, Under the Bridge tells the haunting story of a murder that lays bare a small community's darkest secrets. Go deep into the hidden world of the town's tormented teenagers as detectives race to solve the sinister crime. Starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone, Under the Bridge is now streaming with new episodes Wednesdays, only on Hulu. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me today is Jordan Cruciola. She is a writer and producer and the host of the podcast Feeling Seen on Maximum Fun. Hey, Jordan, welcome back. Hi, thank you for having me to talk about Mike Flanagan's succession. There we go, right. And also with us is freelance journalist Christina Escobar. She's the co-founder and editor-in-chief of latinamedia.co. Welcome back, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. I want to talk about this show. Let's get to it. Okay, so The Fall of the House of Usher is the latest Netflix series from, as Jordan mentioned, Mike Flanagan, the guy behind The Haunting of Hill House, Midnight Mass, and others. Bruce Greenwood plays Roderick Usher, head of a pharmaceutical company responsible for thousands, maybe millions of deaths, though his wealth and power have ensured he's avoided any legal repercussions. His ruthless sister, Madeline, played by Mary McDonnell, is his partner in crime, and the two share a dark secret that begins to come to light as the series begins. The Ushers are now the subject of a criminal case that may finally stick. This one led by longtime Usher nemesis, prosecutor Auguste Dupin, played by Carl Lumley. 
At the same time, the six heirs to the Usher fortune, played by several favorites from Flanagan's many other Netflix series, start suffering bizarre and horrifying consequences. The show's framing device sees Roderick sitting and drinking in the ruined house he and Madeline grew up in, unburdening his soul to a disbelieving Dupin. The series features character names and situations familiar to anyone who's ever read the poems and stories of Edgar Allan Poe, live burial, murderous primates, cursed bloodlines, the whole bard of Baltimore schmear, really. All eight episodes of The Fall of the House of Usher are now streaming on Netflix. Jordan, kick us off. What'd you think? I am a big fan of this one. Okay. The last time I was on to talk about Flanagan was The Midnight Club, which was a tepid affair. And hey, guess what, guys? He's back to miniseries format. Sure. We're back to um, his adult ensemble, and he has roped in some of the young folks from Midnight Club, who popped up a little bit in Midnight Mass 2. There's all kinds of Flanagan Easter eggs in here. He's back together with his collaborator, longtime DP and now episode director, Mike Vimignari. So this is truly a Flana feast. Uh-huh. And it is beautiful storybook horror. It has billions succession-y elements to it. And I love a bit of rich people intrigue. Sure. I'm two thumbs up on this one, honestly. Okay, rich people getting their comeuppance also. You like to see mm. that. Love to see it. <laughs> Eating the rich. Okay. Christina, what'd you think? I really liked it, too. There were some elements that really worked for me and some that didn't. I felt like the Eat the Rich piece was really good and how they modernized because it's all based off of, you know, Edgar Allan Poe's work. And so moving it forward, doing pharmaceuticals, like there was a lot of really strong pieces in there. And it was legitimately scary. Like I was watching it while it was stormy outside my house. And then there was like, I thought I was hearing things that definitely were not happening. Like my kids calling me and I was like, uh, like I was legitimately scared, which is fun. And there were a lot of fun literary elements and like campy stuff, say with a cat. But then there were a few choices like Mary McDonald's wig that I just was like, what? (laughs) And then some of the casting as well. Uh, you know, I always think of Zach Guilford, who plays the young Roderick, as like beloved Friday Night Lights, yeah. uh, warm character. And it was really hard to believe him going so far into the dark side. And I just felt like there were some casting decisions that maybe I would have yeah. handled a little differently. Oh, I hear you. I hear you. For me, though, I mean, I've said this before, but there is a term of art that we big time uh, professional TV critics use sometimes. And uh, I'm going to bust it out here. Hoot and a half. Man, I thought this thing was <laughs> just a hoot and a half. I rolled over for it and it rubbed my tummy. (laughs) Look, real talk. Poe is one of those authors who everybody reads and loves in high school. But then you go away to college and suddenly he's not cool anymore. And you have to pretend that he wasn't your best friend in high school. And you never, you know, had sleepovers at his house. (laughs) And it's not fair because Poe's great. I mean, he's a freak and he could stand to get over his damn self. And people talk about the purple prose. And even that, for me, feature, not a bug. And a perfect compliment to Mike Flanagan, who... Exactly. Famously, that TikTok that went around where it was, hey, Mike, what do you love more, Kate Siegel or monologues? And he says Kate, and he delivers that information via monologue. There you go, right? I mean, that's it. They're vibing on their excess. I mean, there is a time for minimalism, but there's also a time for phantasmagorical miasmas hanging over dark sullen waters of a blurred tarn or whatever. (laughs) This show gets that. And I love, my favorite thing is the Vitamix approach to Poe references that this thing has. If you took a shot every time some character has a Poe character name or there's a reference to a story or poem, your liver would explode. And I love that. I mean, I spent a lot of this show just kind of leaning forward going – basically say the line, Bart, because they would go like, uh, oh, it's called Rue Laboratories, but 
We call it the Rue Morgue. And I'm like, yay, <laughs> there it is. Part of the fun is every time you meet some new character, or are they going to be named Montresor or Prospero or Tamerlane? I love that. I loved that we had anachronistic names in a contemporary setting. I, yeah. I didn't get over that the entire show. Yeah. Did you have a favorite reference? I really liked how, yes, some things were like really obvious. Like if you want ravens, <laughs> They're going to be there, right? Yep. If you like Annabelle Lee, don't worry. There she is. Yeah. But also, like, even I went back and read the story, The House of Usher, after finishing it to see, like, what was in it and what wasn't. Mm-hmm. Some stuff, yes. Some stuff, no. Mm-hmm. Which was really fun. But even just, like, Goldbug is a story. It's not necessarily related. But they did, like, some nice, like, pieces along the way where you might say, like, hmm, I wonder where that came from. It came from Edgar Allan Poe, mm-hmm. yeah. which is nice. Like, I think as a project adapting maybe less cool or general like white guy spooky canon stuff is a fun (laughs) television project to have. You know, it's not Shakespeare. You have to do a lot of work thinking about how to adapt it and put stuff together. And that piece, that construction was really fun to watch. Yeah, I dug that. I dug that. I mean, Carla Gugino plays a character called Verna, and there's no character named Verna in all of Poe. I got stuck on that for a while, and then I realized that anagrams are a thing that live in the world, and I, I just ate this thing up. There's a couple of funeral services in the show, and the priest reads this kind of mashup of various Poe poems. So as he's talking, you're thinking, that's not the usual funeral comforting mm-hmm. homilies. <laughs> this is dark. And then it's like, oh, apparently Catholicism can get even gothier. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I hadn't realized that. Now, the one thing I will say that it took me the longest to warm up to was the modern setting. And, you know, I should have seen it coming because that's what he did with Henry James and Shirley Jackson. But you hear House of Usher and you want decaying rafters and rotting gables and swampy lakes. And what we get in this, in the first couple episodes at least, is this weird suburban cul-de-sac that looks like a movie set. Mm -hmm. Did that work for you, the modern setting? I liked it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It allowed them to play um, with the elements of Poe and take the things that are really fascinating and interesting and still compelling, but also maybe forget some of the other pieces, right? Mm-hmm. Poe perhaps had an obsession with being buried alive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe, one might say. One might um, say. And so that perhaps is not as common of an occurrence now that we have modern medicine. (laughs) But, you know, it still shows up there and then how they handled it and the cruelty behind it or the the pieces of it, I thought worked. And I also, of course, when you move it up to a modern setting, it allows you to have a modern critique here of pharmaceuticals, but of other pieces as well, um, being able to have like people of all sorts of races and sexualities and those pieces, which I thought enriched the story, you just have to wait for your decaying mansion <laughs> cable situation because they did give it to you. You just had to wait for it. Yeah, that's true. Jordan, what about the Sackler parallel here? Did that that work for the pharmaceutical? Oh this, my God, the theme yeah. here is corporate greed. Uh, well, personal greed and corporate greed. How did it work for you? When we open up on like a courtroom drama in the Usher crime family and then like I realized what they're on trial for, I was like, oh, this is Purdue Pharma. Now, I know there have already been a lot of headlines about Fortunato Pharma about Ligodon, about the opioid epidemic in our homes and streets, the mountain of corpses that have piled up since Roger Kusher, he's sitting over there, began marketing his painkillers. This is one-to-one Purdue Pharma. This is OxyContin. That is what Ligodon is. Right, sure. I was kind of surprised at points at almost how 
ripped from the head, like, and in a delighted way, honestly, at how ripped from the headlines it was. There were even Kate Siegel, she plays Camille. Mm -hmm. She is one of the bastard children of the Mm -hmm. Usher family. She's not one of the original born to Roderick and his wife. But she references something that happened, like, very recently in pop culture. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, when did we shoot this compared to when did this get edited? Because this feels very current in a way that I don't think will make it feel like too timely when it comes out. Like, it'll have a sort of expiration date. It just sort of really anchors it in this time and place. I thought that worked really well. I mean, a sort of a perfect avatar for Eat the Rich. Like, this is like a deeply real Eat the Rich scenario of like, these are the people Mm -hmm. responsible for creating a medicine and excusing away its effects and lying to you for decades and creating an opioid epidemic and sort of gleefully cashing in on that. The insertion of like the character of Juno, uh, who plays Roderick's wife, who's essentially his little ligadone living experiment and how it's an okay pill. Yeah, and Juno is played by Ruth Codd. Juno is, as you mentioned, uh, Roderick Usher's mm-hmm. new wife, brand new wife. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like anytime you kind of think you might be coming around on someone who like, oh, well, here's a flash of humanity in this. You see something absolutely vile that they've done again. Sure. I cannot go on without pointing out that this is a feast for Carla Gugino. Yeah. All that sweat, the perfumes, the lotions, the musk, sex, yes, but with a dash of Rome. Mike Flanagan loves and respects and appreciates the gifts of Carla Gugino and the amount of different things she gets to do in this and kind of surprising things with the way some of the deaths come around and the avatar that she is for certain objects of murder is very Mm -hmm. interesting. And I just love getting to see people feast on a character on screen. And Bruce Greenwood, what an eternal hunk. What an eternal pro. I love how delicately he crafts everything. Mike Flanagan, like, he cares as much as Quentin Tarantino about every inch of a frame and everything is sort of like a love letter to film and television. But he just is um, – he's a tender heart. His casting director uh, just deserves some props oh, here because Bruce Greenwood, let's talk about it. Like he wasn't originally cast in this part. That was Frank Langella. And then there was a misconduct investigation and Langella was dismissed. And they reshot all the scenes with Bruce Greenwood as Roderick Usher. But, you know, he works. He's such a part of the mix here. He's such a part of this ensemble. And that voice, that rumbly, oh. deep – Beso profundo. And the way he approaches this, I think, makes this thing work. He is not pushing Mm -hmm. it. He is so chill. He's so naturalistic. And so the scenes with all this weird stuff happening, he is right there in the center, locked Mm -hmm. in. Those scenes between him and Lumley. Now, that's the framing device, right? You're supposed to just get past that to expedite the story. I wanted to hang out there. I did. You wanted some of that drink? I wanted some of that cognac. Did you guys Google (laughs) that cognac, thinking it was a bit? No. Aged in barrels for... More than a hundred years. And the bottle itself dipped in 18 karat yellow gold inlaid with 4,100 high quality diamonds. You know, a single pour, it probably caused twice your annual salary. It's real, <laughs> which is criminal. So every time I realize it, yes. it's like, okay, no, no, these people could suffer. I, I'm fine with that. The plot of this thing, the structure to the series does get a bit repetitive once you know what's going to happen per episode. Mm-hmm. Part of the appeal, I suppose. Did you, did you guys have any quibbles with the form? I liked it. I felt that 
you know, it's a classic horror trope, right? You have a group of people and then they get killed off one by one mm-hmm. by one. And of course, this is a series and not a movie. So it goes a little slower. But I thought there was a fair amount of fun. Sure. At first, I wanted to figure out who was going to die. It took me an episode or two to figure out the order. Mm-hmm. And the, also by that reading the episode titles would help yep. with that. Um, but once you'd figured that out, it was still very satisfying to watch how each one would descend into a hell of their own making. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't just put a pin on it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah a mm-hmm. thing that Mike Flanagan is really good at is he has long been like very good at just putting a great female character all over the place. Like, how about I just write this well and then cast it well and then it's going to go off well. And as his ensemble has expanded, he has moved the material to fit the specificity of his ensemble. He has not shoehorned people into parts where it would be awkward for them to play, or it's been like a let's gender flip it, or let's like change the race of this character blindly without any regard to like who that actual person, actor, and character is. And so like as you add Rahul Kohli, as you add Tania Miller, and like his work just becomes richer as a result of the broad nature of the ensemble that he has in a way that doesn't feel like it's reacting to somebody's notes. He's just bringing together people he loves to work with. And Mike Linnigan will gay up a project delightfully in a way that like (laughs) makes me not feel like I'm watching some sort of performative act of like, and now let's throw something in for the queers. (laughs) Like there's tenderness and texture and, and authenticity to like the lived in nature and the flexibility of like, the queer people in their stories and in his programming. And I really, really appreciate that about him. Yeah, I thought the diversity was strong, right? That they, it didn't feel forced. It didn't feel like, let's have one of everybody so everyone is happy and no one complains. Like, it didn't feel that way. It felt authentic and interesting. And then because each of the siblings gets their own episode, right, you're sure that you're going to get time with everybody. Mm -hmm. There's reason to root for all of their deaths, (laughs) some more than others, for sure. That's true. That's true. But, like, there was plenty of, like, Get them, you know? Like, yeah. okay. Absolutely. <laughs> that diversity, that tenderness, that approach, that's endemic to Flanagan's work specifically on Netflix. The other thing that's endemic to his work, I got to say, though, is when the supernatural element gets explained, once we figure out what's really going on, we lose the mystery, we lose some of the juice. That's that's inevitable, at least to me. Did you guys feel that? I like they did a little bit better job. Sometimes you'll watch a horror film and when you finally see the monster, it's like, that's stupid. I'm done. I felt like on here, because of how he was haunted and the the apparitions of the corpses as they showed up were genuinely scary. Sometimes more scary than others, but along the way, I felt like those visuals worked even as they did function as reveals. So the central conceit about what's happening is very guessable. (laughs) I was not surprised by what was happening, Mm -hmm. but it didn't make the journey less fun. And I would say also when we learn the exact nature of what has happened, it Mm -hmm. I was upset by it, even yeah. though I had predicted it, you <laughs> yep. know? That's the key, I guess. Yeah, Mike Flanagan is going to make ups- upsetting things. Even if you know what's about to happen, he has a way, I think, of crafting something that will just sort of emotionally shred you or still manage a way to find a way to, like, gorily horrify you. And he also does pop up in a little Easter egg scene in the background of a, of a fitness video if you keep your eyes uh, open. Oh, hey. That's cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I think... There is an inevitability to this, which is part of the horror. Uh, and you know you're going to see these kids get kind of knocked off one by one. But in the meantime, we get the post stuff. 
we get all this kind of like, how are they going to invert? How are they going to iterate? How are they going to inflect mm -hmm. the Poe content? And that's what kept me going. This is for the people who want to flip through the pages and go back and see what was there and what wasn't. But otherwise, it's mm -hmm. we're just going to make something that's good. And the sort of surprising aspects of that that feel out of place in a contemporary setting, they just become something that feels nicely specific. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it feels enriching. It's not like, you know, it's not another guy named Dave. Like, I want to know what's going to go on at <laughs> Prospero's Club, honestly, more than I want to know what's yeah. going on at Rick's Club. So, like, there's just something mm -hmm. where it's like, it's not dumbing something down for your audience or it's not being like, water this down a little bit so people feel like it's more accessible. Like, no, let's make something good and resonant so it's accessible. And then we can add all these fun pieces in that make it feel unique to this project and this adaptation, as there have been so many adaptations of Poe. I guess I would say, you know, there's social critique in here, there's horror, but there's also camp. And yeah. I appreciated yeah. that. Like, there was, like, funny stuff, you know? Like, it wasn't... The whole episode with the cat was hilarious to me, like the whole <laughs> thing. Um, and it was nice to have those elements mixed in because it it makes the contrast, right, makes the scary more scary. It makes the dark more dark. Mm -hmm. um, and to be able to to blend all of those things so well is something I really appreciated about it. Absolutely. Well, as you can tell, we kind of liked <laughs> The Fall of the House of Usher. What we want to know what you think about The Fall of the House of Usher, find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. That brings us to the end of our show. Jordan Cruciola, Christina Escobar, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We want to take a moment to thank our Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus subscribers. We appreciate you so much for showing your support of NPR. If you have not signed up yet, want to show your support and listen to the show without a single solitary sponsor break, head over to plus.npr.org slash happy hour or visit the link in our show notes. This episode was produced by Hafsa Fatima and Liz Metzger and edited by Mike Katzif. Our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy and Hello Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon and we'll see you all tomorrow. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR.